Good morning. I'm here to pray for the preaching of God's word today. So let us pray. Dear Lord, we just uh, come before you and um, just thank you for all the goodness that you are to us. Lord, we just pray that you would, your word would be manifest within our hearts today and that we would just um, hear what is said, uh, that it would go f- go into our hearts and and bring new life to us and show us the way that you would have us to live. Lord, we just uh, delight in hearing your word every day. Um, we pray for this preaching today and that Josh's words that he has to say would come from you and not from um, everything that he has studied, but just that you are speaking to him and that he is telling us what you're saying. Lord, just thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing our series through the book of Genesis. I'm going verse by verse, so we'll get through eventually. <laughs> We've already seen how the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, they've existed eternally, they've created all things, and they've created everything very good. And last week, we saw how God's creation rebelled against him. We saw how the spiritual being, Satan, rebelled, and he tempted the first woman and man to also rebel. He tempted them by saying, don't you want to be like God? Even though they were already made in God's image, they wanted to be equal to God. They wanted to choose what was right and wrong in their own eyes. We saw how the the curse of Satan last week, and even in the curse and punishment, we saw the promise of God's rescue plan to defeat Satan, to defeat sin, to defeat death, pointing us to Jesus, who being God became human. He lived the perfect life and died the death we deserve. As the song goes, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. He defeated death by death and raising from the dead. We have victory over sin and death through faith in Christ, but we still live in a world, as we can see around us, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, we see the effects of sin and evil all around us. And today we're going to look at the biblical account of these effects, the effects of the fall. We'll be in Genesis 3, starting in verse 16 today, and we have four main points. First, we'll see that suffering that leads to joy. Second, we'll look at authority in marriage. Third, we'll look at they're banned, humans are banned from the tree of life. Fourth, we ask the question, is sin ruling over you or are you ruling over sin? 
So starting today in Genesis 3.16, in the previous verses, God punished Satan. Now he turns to the woman and gives her two punishments, two consequences of her sin in Genesis 3.16, suffering that leads to joy. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. So when God gave man and woman the original command to be fruitful and multiply, this would be, a, be accomplished through having children. It was not meant to be painful as it is today. And even though this punishment is given to, and this punishment is given to the first woman, we know that this curse extends to every woman after that. Now, there are instances, by the miraculous grace and mercy of God, if you've heard a story where someone had a painless childbirth, that does happen, and that is a miracle, right? But overall, giving birth is very difficult. We don't, I don't think that needs to be elaborated. Uh, I mean, it's so painful that doctors have come up with a shot that they give to women that actually goes to near their spinal cord to numb the pain, right? That's how bad it, like, the pain is. Sorry for those who have went through that. <laughs> the point is that it wasn't meant to be this way. God created everything good. There was, no, there was not pain. There was not supposed to be pain in this. But because of sin, because of the fall, now we experience this pain. But even in the midst of pain, giving life through birth is still a joyous celebration. Jesus actually uses this as an illustration to explain the nature of suffering and pain that we experience now, but the joy that awaits us, the joy that awaits you because of your faith in Christ. In John 16, verse 21, Jesus says, When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. The joy makes the suffering seem so distant and far because of the joy of the person, the joy of the baby coming into the world. And so he uses this as an illustration. He says in verse 22, so you also have sorrow now. You have pain now. You have troubles, heartache. But I will see you again, he says. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. So even though we have suffering and pain now, we see the illustration of the woman's pain and suffering in childbirth, we will one day have joy because Jesus will return and make all things right. We have to remember that suffering and pain is only temporary because one day we will see Jesus face to face, to face and no one can take that joy away from you. So in the midst of the effects of sin and the fall, we look forward, we constantly look forward to the hope we have in Jesus, which gives us strength to face each new day. Not only will there be pain in childbirth, the second consequence God gives the woman will be the effect of the relationship between husband and wife. As we move into point number two, authority in marriage. As Genesis 3.16 continues, God says, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband. That doesn't sound too bad. That sounds good, right? That sounds like a good thing. But we must recognize that you can have good desires and you can have bad desires. 
And in this case, it seems like as a result of sin and the result of the fall, there's going to be a bad desire on the woman's part. There will be a temptation for, for women to have the bad desire to namely to control their husbands. Uh, the New Living Translation, I think, gets the sense right when they, they translate it this way. It says, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. We understand this is a bad desire in 316 because this Hebrew word for desire is only used one other time in Genesis, and it's used in Genesis 4-7, and it's clearly a bad kind of desire. Let's look at Genesis 4-7. God is speaking to Cain here. Cain is furious with his brother, as we'll read in a little bit, and God warns Cain, saying, If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you. Sin is de- has a desire for you. That's not a good desire. You don't want sin to be desiring you. But what must you do? He says, but you must rule over it. So if sin has a desire for you, that's clearly a bad desire. That's a, you do not want that. And so back in Genesis 3, 3.16, neither do we want there to be a bad desire for the woman to control their husband, Right? So part of the result of sin in the fall is to go against God's created order. We saw how men and women were to rule over God's creation, including the animals. But Satan takes the form of a serpent to try and flip God's order upside down and say, no, I'm going to actually show you, God, like the serpent's going to tell Eve and the man what to do instead of the other way around. And now the woman will try to be in authority over the man. This is where many conflicts in marriage arise. There is, uh, th- there is disagreement. There is a confusion on who has authority. So what are the roles of men and women in marriage? We have seen that God gave the command to Adam in the garden. Adam was to be responsible for protecting his wife. God comes to Adam first in the garden after they have sinned. He's the leader of the household. And he says, Adam, what is going on? Adam was the, the one ultimately responsible. We see some more of this authority given to the man in the naming of his wife in Genesis 3.20. Adam will name Eve. There's a sense of authority and leadership in that naming. So now the temptation cuts both ways here. There will be a temptation for the, women, for, for the woman to have authority over the man, over her husband. Then there will also be a temptation for the man to give up the authority to the woman. So just as Adam let Eve lead in the discussion with Satan and, le- and, let, and let Eve lead in eating of the fruit, he, he let that authority go. Wives must work to submit to the leadership of their husbands, and husbands must step up and actually lead. Now, before you stop listening, ready? <laughs> I know I just used the words authority, submission, leadership, which are really bad words in today's time, okay? But they've become bad words because people have misused authority. People have misused leadership. People have misused what it means to be a husband and a wife. Because of sin and the fall, many husbands have led like dictators and tyrants. They have been abusive. They have been overbearing, over-controlling, mean, unloving. Even worse, many men would say, 
No, I'm leading my family because Jesus told me to do this. That's not what the Bible says. God does not condone abusive relationships. God does not condone a husband abusing his wife and then claiming that he's doing what the Bible says. That's not biblical male leadership. Here's what I'm trying to say. Because people have misused authority doesn't mean all authority is bad, right? You want your kids to obey you, right? That's rooted in your authority as a parent. You want people not to steal things from your house. That's rooted in the authority of the laws of the government. You wouldn't want someone to be baptized in the name of Jesus if they don't really trust in Jesus as their God, Savior, and King. So that's rooted in the authority of the church to rightly teach the word of God and to declare who the citizens of God's kingdom are. Now we have the authorities of government, we have the authority of parents, the authority of churches. These are all imperfect authorities. They make mistakes. But overall, these authorities have been set up by God and are good for us. Your parents, the laws of the government, the church is meant for your good. God is the perfect and only perfect good and holy authority. We ought to submit to him in all things because he is our God, our creator, our savior, our king. And so when it comes to husbands having authority, what does good authority look like? We can imagine a lot of bad examples, bad authority, but what does good authority look like? I think I've quoted Ephesians 5 probably every sermon the past couple of weeks. We've got to go to Ephesians 5 again. Ephesians 5.24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's how husbands are supposed to lead. That's how husbands are supposed to be uh, modeling and loving their wife. They're sacrificing themselves as Jesus sacrificed himself. This is the mindset husbands and wives are striving for. It will be difficult because of our sinful nature. And again, I want to stress, if you or anyone you know is in an abusive relationship, and they're, you, some people might even quote this verse and saying to excuse their abuse, don't let that go. If you're in an abusive relationship or you know someone in an abusive relationship, get help. Talk to someone. God does not want you to be in an unsafe place, an unsafe relationship. It's not loving to stay in an abusive relationship, allowing the other person to continue in their sin. So relationships are difficult because of the effects of sin. We must depend on God's word. We must depend on his spirit inside us and those in the church this last point, you, those in the church, you can learn a lot from other people. Those who have been married for 30 to 50 years, how have they sought to live out Ephesians 5? The older can teach the younger, and the older can also learn, learn from the younger. We are to be in this together, learning from each other. So that's the two results for the women, the effects of the fall, painful childbirth and a difficult relationship with her husband and trying to usurp that authority. And the, the, the effects go on as we turn to our third point, that they are banned from the tree of life. In verse 17, God said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. You see, again, the emphasis on the roles of men and women 
He, he says the man listened and followed his wife instead of leading her away from sin. He followed her and joined her in sin. Adam was to protect and guide his wife spiritually, but he didn't. His disobedience has a consequence. As we continue reading verse 17, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by the means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. So remember, God ordained men and women to work before the fall. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it, to watch over it. We were ordained by God to work before sin entered the world. But now that sin has entered, that work is very difficult, is very hard. Not only is it difficult, we are tempted, men especially, are tempted to find our identity, or find our ultimate purpose in our work. While women in general have the temptation to find their ultimate identity in their role as mother or caregiver, Men are tempted to neglect their families in the name of providing for them. I have to go to work. I have to work 120 hours a week, right? Work becomes an idol. Work can become something that we worship, that controls us. And at the end of the day, for what? Why? As, a, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes 2.11, he says, When I considered all that I had accomplished... And what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile. In a pursuit of the wind, there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You can work all day, every day for your whole life, but if that's, if that's all there is, it'll all pass away, right? What is to be gained? Now, from other passages throughout the Bible, clearly God wants us to work and not to be lazy. But we must not make work an idol. I've never talked with an old man who said, you know what, Josh, looking back on my life, I wish I spent more time at the office. No one's ever told me that. What do they tell me? I said, Josh, don't neglect your family. Spend every time, every day, every minute you can with them. Those are the things that last. So instead of working and striving for merely temporary things that are here today and gone tomorrow, let us focus on things that have an eternal impact for we know this life doesn't last forever we know one of the results of sin is that we all physically die genesis three nineteen says you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it for you are dust and you will return to dust isn't that humbling God created us out of the dust of the ground, and one day our bodies will decay and turn into dust again. No matter how much you work, no matter how much you accomplish, your body won't live forever. Remember from last week, the servant said, you will surely not die. Even though God gave the consequence beforehand, he reissues the death sentence here as well. But even in the midst of the death sentence, we also see the grace of God. Because he doesn't enact justice immediately. Do you notice that? But he will let Adam and Eve live hundreds of years. Again, even though they rebelled against the God of creation, 
God had set forth a way for humanity to be forgiven, be forgiven of their sin, be rescued from death and Satan. As we saw last week, it will be through the offspring of the woman. And so God lets them continue on and live and have children. We see this in Genesis 3.20. It says, The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So we covered most of these passages, uh, these verses last week, pointing us to Jesus, who is, we are clothed in his righteousness. He is the one who saves us. He is the offspring that Eve will have to save us. But here we see them being banned from the tree of life forever because knowing good and evil for Adam and Eve meant that they would want to choose between good and evil for themselves. They wouldn't want to trust God. God says, this is good and this is evil. They said, well, let us decide. Right? So now, if they were to live for eternity, they would continue making one bad decision, one evil decision after another. And so God takes the tree of life from them so that they won't live forever. This serves both as their punishment and actually a grace that they wouldn't live forever in such a fallen state of sin, such a fallen state of hardship and evil. Can you imagine living forever in, a, in, in evil, in, in, in sin? If they had not sinned, they could have lived forever in perfect harmony with God, perfect harmony with each other and the rest of creation. But actions have consequences. And God is a God who is true to his word, and he's a God of justice. So God banishes them from the garden, verse 23 so the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, this is the first time cherubim are introduced in the Bible. They're going to be mentioned uh, quite a few times throughout the Old Testament. Uh, they are basically spiritual beings, obviously created by God. God created all things. And they're mentioned later in the Old Testament. In every instance, they are depicted as serving as guards. They are guarding God's presence. And here they are guarding the tree of life. They are symbolized by the gold statues above the Ark of the Covenant. They are embroidered on the veil separating the holy place and the temple. The point being made is clear with the cherubim guards and the flaming sword. It's not for God's protection, but it's to keep others away from the tree of life. And actually, it's protecting sinful people from being in the holy presence of God. While eternal life was taken from Adam and Eve, God offers eternal life and restoration to his presence through Jesus. Revelation 2.7 says it this way. He says, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is, in, which is in the paradise of God. So what was taken away at the fall, the tree of life, eternal life, is now offered to those who conquer. Some might be wondering, who or what do I have to defeat, what do I have to conquer in order to get to the tree of life? 
What does it mean for you to conquer? What does Revelation 2, 7 mean? Well, 1 John 5, 5 makes it really clear. You can get it in the context of Revelation as well if you read the first couple chapters. But 1 John 5, 5 makes it really clear. What does it mean to conquer? Who is the one who conquers the world? But the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's how you conquer. You believe in Jesus as the Son of God. If you want to be made right with God, have faith. Put your trust in Jesus as God's Son, that he died for your sins. There is no other way to conquer, no other way to get to the tree of life. You can't get through the cherubim, you can't get through the swords. There is no other way to get back to the presence of God except through Jesus. But from the vantage point of Genesis, they have a long way to go, and they have a lot to learn and prepare the way for Jesus, the promised offspring of Eve. And we see this story continue as our last point here. Is sin ruling over you, or are you ruling over sin? In Genesis 4.1, the man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have made a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. Now if you're reading this and you try to put it in your head and you're reading this for the first time, Perhaps you might be thinking one of these sons of Eve will be the promised offspring that will crush the serpent's head, right? That was the promise in, in Genesis 3.15, and here's her first offering. It says that a male child with the Lord's help, and so clearly God is in the work of this. And so maybe one of these, these brothers will defeat sin and Satan. As we read on Genesis 4.3, in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now notice here the wording. Cain gave some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, while Abel gave some of the firstborn of his flock, the fat portions. So in other words, Cain gave just the average crop, while Abel gave the best. He gave his first, the best, to the Lord as an offering. And we see that this played out in, in verse 4. It says, The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. In other words, God accepted the offering of Abel, but not Cain. Because Abel gave his best, and Cain did not. And then you ask the question, well, why did Cain, I mean, why did Abel offer his best to God? And Cain not. Why didn't Cain offer his best? Hebrews, in the, in the New Testament, Hebrews 11.4, tells us, gets to the heart of the matter. It tells us in Hebrews 11.4, that by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. You see, what's at the root of the matter is that when you're coming before the Lord and worship, he wants you to have faith in him. Abel had faith, whereas Cain did not. Abel had true faith and trust in God. He wanted to give God his best and would trust God to take care of him. He wanted to worship God with all his heart, all his mind, all his strength. It was not out of compulsion, but joy and love for God, faith in God. We see here that worshiping God is not just a matter of external ritual but it is to be an internal 
heart cry of faith. Cain's offer shows us that it is possible to look like you worship God. He offered an offering. Everyone would see that and be like, Cain's a good guy, right? But on the inside, you can be far from God. You can sing praises, you can give money, you can serve in a soup kitchen, but if it's not done in faith and trusting God, then it's not true worship. And we can see that Cain's heart was not pure, for how does he respond to hearing about Abel's offering being accepted, but not his own? In verse 5, Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Now, despondent, other translations, his, his face down with countenance, his countenance was down trodden. Basically, he was really angry, and his fa- he's looking down, right? His face was cast down. Instead of looking up to God for forgiveness, instead of looking up to God for his mercy, he just looks down and brews in his anger, right? He just revels in his anger. Even in this, we see the mercy and grace of God, for even though Cain did not call out to God in this moment, God reaches down to Cain reaches out to him. In verse 6, the Lord God said to Cain, why are you furious? I mean, God knows why. He knows his heart, but he wants Cain to reflect on these things. He says, why are you furious, and why do you look despondent, downcast? Why are you looking down? In verse 7, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? In other words, this ain't the end of the line. (laughs) Have faith and trust in me. Worship me with your whole self. Worship me with your best. And you'll be accepted. See how gracious and merciful God is? He doesn't have faith at the beginning. He's furious, but God says, you can still make this right. You can make this right. And he warns Cain in verse 7. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So even though Cain has had a rough start, perhaps Cain could be the promised offspring. Perhaps he is the one who would defeat sin. Maybe this is his moment to rule over sin, right? He has this moment. He has this decision. However, in the midst of Cain's fury, in the midst of his anger, sin is waiting for him to give in to his sinful desire, to take his fury to its consequences. God has warned him of the dangerous place he's in. And he can stop before it's too late. And really, this question is given to each and every one of us. We face this question on a day-to-day basis in a battle of sin. When we are tempted to brew in anger about what someone said to us, and it builds up resentment until we find ourselves never talking to that person for years, right? When we are tempted to look at a person lustfully and then to continue in that lust to daydream, then the sin would grow into action. Sin usually starts small, a sinful thought, maybe a sinful reaction, but then grows, the desire grows and leads to worse sins. As Christians, as people have been saved by Jesus' death and resurrection, you have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, enabling you to rule over sin. And so when this question is faced, you can do what is right or sin is crouching at the door waiting for you, which one are you going to do? As a Christian, sin is no longer your master. But sometimes we 
we go back and flirt with our old sin master. So as a Christian, here is your process. Here's a process. Here's a basic process for fighting and ruling over your sin. Just four really points of application here. To defeat and rule over your sin. First and primary thing is to preach the good news to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of what Jesus has done for you. If that's not at the center of your life, then everything else will fall short. Remind yourself that you are forgiven in Christ. Remind yourself that you have the Holy Spirit, that God has created you for a purpose to live holy for him. Second, have others around you preach the gospel to you and remind you of the gospel. We need each other. This is what we do when we come together on Sundays and Wednesdays and on Mondays, whenever you guys meet, right? Is we remind ourselves of who we are. We remind ourselves of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us. We do that through our singing. We do that through our prayers. We do that through the reading and preaching of God's word. So have others. You need others to remind you. When isolated, we forget these things. And other people need you. you other people need your encouragement, need you to remind them of the gospel. Number three, it's simple, but often goes uh, neglected. Pray. Pray and ask God for help. Ask him to send people that can help you. Ask, people, ask him to send you someone that can keep you accountable. God can help you. And sometimes his help is by sending people in your life to help you. Number four, last one here. Hide God's word in your heart. Hide God's word in your heart to defeat sin. And that's more than just memorizing it, but hiding it in your heart is internalizing it. It's believing it. It's taking God at his word and trusting God's word to saying, God, you know best. You know what I need. I trust you. Now, while we all have this daily sin battle, we all experience this. Before we have this daily sin battle as Christians, everyone once was not a Christian. Everyone once was an unbeliever. So everyone, at some point in their life, has a decision to make. A decision to make that first step. To either battle against sin or to just give in and do whatever you desire. And the first step in the battle, we've already talked about it today, and how do you conquer? How do you rule over sin? The first step is to trust in Jesus. You can't go, you can't take any of the other steps unless you first trust in Jesus as your God, as your Savior, as your King. Without trusting in Jesus, the ultimate and final firstborn offering, you can never be able to rule over sin. You will never be able to rule over Satan or death. They will rule over you. God has graciously offered this way of salvation to everyone. And so as God said to Cain, he also says to each of, each of us, again in Genesis 4, 6, this is to each of us, why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Again, 
The only way you can rule over it and conquer it, it's not on your own. It's not through your good deeds or actions. It's not by performing a ritual. It's by trusting in Jesus. You have to trust in him conquering sin and death. So as we end here, I want to pray for us and have the opportunity, if you want to respond to how God is moving through his word, I would love to talk with you after the service or during the song of response. I'd love to pray for you. And you're going to have to come back next week to see how the story of Cain and Abel finishes out. So let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are, you are amazingly gracious. Just time and time again, where we have sinned and we have fallen short and we have rebelled. And we see in the story today that Cain has openly rebelled and his, I mean, his parents openly rebelled, and you gave them time. You gave them uh, the opportunity to have children and to experience good and blessed things. And then here with Cain, you give him the option. So you can do what is right. Repent and trust in me. God, that is the question before each of us. We have the option to repent of our sin, to turn to you and trust in you for forgiveness. I thank you for that grace. Help us to do that. Work in us. God, if there's anyone here today who is dealing with a sin struggle and they feel like sin is really, they, they, when they say sin is crouching out the door, they know what that feels like. God, I know what that feels like. God, we need you. We need you. We need your help to, de- to, to rule over sin, to defeat it. God, help us trust in Jesus. And when we fall short, help us trust in Jesus. Remind us that there is no condemnation in Christ. God, help us be there for one another. Help us to encourage one another in the faith. Help us remind each other of the gospel, of what you've done for us. God, bring us together as a church family. Help us be unified around this gospel. God, help us worship you today and all the days of our life in spirit and in truth. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.